Nothing on the Bonnell Foundation's Living with Cystic Fibrosis podcast should be considered medical advice. Medical advice can only come from your CF physician. Cystic fibrosis can be a devastating diagnosis, but living with the disease can bring positivity and a new appreciation for each day. From the Bonnell Foundation in Detroit, Michigan, it's the Living with Cystic Fibrosis podcast, sponsored by Beatrice, Genentech, and Vertex. Here's your host, Laura Bonnell. Melody Ramon and I met on Twitter before the pandemic. Melody was supporting all of my posts, and I wondered why. Did she have a CF connection? She was, and as it turns out, supportive of the CF community, but had no direct connection. The people with CF and their caregivers always had a place in her heart. And now she's written another novel, Falls the Breath, that has a character who has cystic fibrosis. And the proceeds from this book are all going to the Bonnell Foundation. How wonderful and selfless is that of her to do? She first published in literary magazines at the age of 12. Melody Ramone is a lifelong writer from the suburbs of Chicago, Illinois. And when she's not behind the keyboard, she's involved with small animal rescue and is actively engaged in advocating for funding and research for cystic fibrosis. And she is the best-selling author of After Forward Ends and currently resides in central Illinois. Welcome, Melody. I love our friendship story. Meeting on Twitter and now we're dear friends and we've seen each other in person so many times. And we're only about five hours apart. You're in Illinois and I'm in Michigan. You have a great life with kids and pets and a husband and you're writing and you started so young. So how did you know that being a writer was what you wanted to do? I started reading when I was really, really young. I was probably about three or four. And what I would do is I would memorize the books that my mother would read to me. And then I would pretend to read. So I kind of self-taught that way. So by the time I was five, I was already like devouring children's books like crazy. And I think I wrote my first poem when I was about seven. It's in my blood. I mean, I think he's my ninth or 10th great grandfather was actually John Milton. I mean, Paradise Lost, John Milton. Incredible. Literally in my blood. It is in your blood. It's just so interesting. Everything that I've learned from you um, and just about how time consuming writing is. When you did that mom's retreat with all of us, it was, gosh, a couple of years ago now, um, the beginning of the pandemic. But you inspired everyone in that group just with your words. It was so beautiful. And we really could have and should have done it every month after that. It was just really so special. I mean, words are so moving. And you also encouraged me to write. And it is scary. Like, how do you get started? How did you get started on your first book? What were you thinking? Were you thinking, oh my gosh, do you think immediately about the success of it? Or do you think you just want to get the words down on paper or that it doesn't matter who's going to read it? How do you get started? Everybody sort of has their own process. And my process usually begins with a character. I'm not really sure where they come from. Sort of an idea or maybe an impression. Sometimes it's a song lyric, you know, and it just sort of grows from there. I don't think that anybody can, I mean, there are plenty of books written about it, but I don't think anybody can tell you what your process is or how to start. You can start at the end. You can actually like have an ending to a book to begin with and then kind of write it backwards in your mind. Mine always start with characters and the characters 
just tell me the story. Once I get to know them and I have a basic idea of what's going on, I just sort of follow what they tell me. I'm what they call a pantser. There are plotters and there are pantsers. I couldn't write an outline to save my life. I literally just has to flow and it flows at its own pace. If I try to push it, it never works. That is really interesting. And I probably for a lot of people too, because you're saying there isn't one way to do this. It's your way. It's whatever works for you, correct? Exactly. Yep, absolutely. You really just have to jump in and do it. I always have a little file that I make before I even start writing. And I have 20 files and they're like literally all labeled bits and pieces. <laughs> That's what I call them all, bits and pieces. Because it's just ideas, bits of dialogue, or maybe a scene that's in my head, or a character description, or something like that. That's part of my process. It's just, it's a hot mess of a little file with a whole bunch of things in it. And I don't always even use it later. It just helps me work in my mind to get to the next step. And when I start writing, it's just gobbledygook. The first draft is always terrible. And that's why there's editing. And that's why there are, you know, sometimes one or two drafts, sometimes 30. It just kind of depends on what you're writing and how intense and how deep you need to go. Take us, and, and I find this so interesting because I feel like all artists like you and my mom's, you know, a sculptor, but it's all these ideas that come into your head. It's such a creative and beautiful process. Kind of take us, what was the first book that you wrote and how, you know, your path just keeps going until this book um, falls the breath that we're going to talk about. Now, when you ask me about my first book, are you talking like the first short story that I ever had published? Because that's going way back. I was we, can go, we can go as far back. I mean, sure, let's start at 12 and just talk about your growth and how you figured out what you were going to write and how everything evolved. Well, I wrote a short story when I was in seventh grade. And my teacher thought that it was worthy of being submitted to this young author literary magazine. And she submitted it for me and it got published. So that was the first time that I was published. And then I figured out somewhere, probably my freshman or sophomore year in high school, that I could make money writing. <laughs> so I entered every contest I could find, every essay contest, every short story contest, everything that I could get my hands on. And a lot of the time it was just gift certificates or, you know, I'd win 20, 25 bucks. But back then, you know, 25 bucks was a big deal for a 14 year old. So I thought I was making a living, <laughs> you know, just a freelancer. Didn't even realize I was freelancing, but that's what I was doing. So then I worked in the music industry for a while and I had a couple gigs where I would give an editor to a certain magazine. I probably can't give her name, but I used to give her inside information on rock stars and write a column under an assumed name. And <laughs> So I did that from about, oh, when did I start? I think I was 16 until I was about 20, 2021 ish when I left that job. And after that, I stopped writing. I stopped writing for a long time. I mean, I still wrote, but I didn't do anything, didn't publish anything, just sort of um, kind of a dark period in my life. And then when I was in my early 30s, I started writing again. And it was mostly just journaling, just freestyling thoughts and poetry, lots of poetry. I think I was, gosh, I don't even remember, 2010 or 2012 when I wrote After Forever Ends. And that was just an outpouring. It was an outpouring of so many things. It was really cathartic just to write that book. And that was my most successful book. Um, that actually went to number one in World Lit, which was absolutely incredible. 
And after that, I decided that I wanted to write a book that was based upon kind of a conglomeration of my experiences in the music industry. So I based those characters kind of loosely off of people that I had known and people that I'd been around, stories that of their lives and fictionalized 80% of it. Um, that was Burning Down Rome. Then I wrote a sister novel to that, which was Lights of Polaris, which, which was actually about one of the main characters in Burning Down Rome's sister's story with a tie-in to the characters in Burning Down Rome. Those were my novels. And I actually haven't published anything since 2015 because I've been working on the Brimfield Ghosts book series. And that, as I ramble on here, no, that, I love it. that series started off as a six book series. And as I went through it, I began to realize that it was more powerful. It was more poignant being shorter. So I went back and combined, there were six books, so I, I combined each two to make them three. And Falls of Breath is the first result of that. That just came out on the 15th of July this year. So, And that's, that's very nice. exciting. And I wanted to talk about how this came about and your involvement with cystic fibrosis when you, you know, became aware of this disease and how you started to kind of get involved? Well, I think cystic fibrosis is in pretty much everybody's periphery, right? You hear about it, but there aren't that many people that at least that I've met up until I began the journey with the books and having cystic fibrosis be a part of the book and a part of the process. I didn't know very many people that really knew what it was or knew about it. And I'm definitely one of those people. I'm always a little, I don't know why I feel embarrassed to say this, but I always have like a little bit of hesitance to admit that when I discovered what cystic fibrosis was, I was actually doing research. I had an idea for a book and I needed a disease that was progressive and that would affect the respiratory system. And I'm Googling and Googling and I'm looking at all these different things and came across cystic fibrosis and I was looking at the symptoms and I was like, okay, you know, this might work real casual, right? Like just mm -hmm. approaching it. And that's probably what I'm embarrassed about is that it was sort of a casual curiosity. Let's see what this is. So I started researching it and decided that that was what I was going to use, but I really wanted to understand it. So I just went down the rabbit hole of research, you know, reading everything I could find, Googling terms and meanings and really figuring out exactly what it was. And then I started watching vlogs and reading blogs and, you know, it just kept stopping my heart. That's the best way that I can put it. I would have to pause and I just, oh, you know, oh no, no, no. Just, I remember those thoughts. And I, I've told you this before, but it was on YouTube. It was a news broadcast and it was about a little girl. She was eight years old and she had cystic fibrosis. And it was just kind of like a, a local coverage of someone in the vicinity. They were talking to the mother. They interviewed the mother. They interviewed the little girl. And um, the mother had said during the initial interview that she wasn't feeling very well. And they showed the what they had originally intended to broadcast. And at the end of the broadcast, they updated and they said that this little girl had developed, I think it was pneumonia. She had developed mm -hmm. pneumonia and she had passed away. And um, I was choked up a little bit. But the mother said she was just devastated. And she said, you know, she should be out there playing in the yard right now. And I hit the pause button. And I remember just being completely overwhelmed and leaning back in my chair. And literally out loud, I said, oh, hell no. 
And the entire trajectory of the story changed at that point. And it was my mission and my goal, and I hope I have done it, not to make CF a hook. CF is not a hook in this book. It's a serious disease, a serious subject. And I wanted to show Kevin's experience as realistically as possible, having not lived it myself. Hopefully I succeeded in that. And you and we'll did. continue. Yeah, I have read the book and I mean, I would think we've gone over it quite a bit. And I think you did a beautiful job in your novel. He is living with this disease. So I, I think you did a great job. And I'm also really impressed with all the research you've done and how supportive you are of the CF community. And now you've met a bunch of CF people in person, including my daughter and Beth's daughter um, at our last big gala. You know, and we keep talking and on social media, you're all over. So I think you've done a great job and it's paying tribute to this disease and raising awareness all right. at the same time. So right. it's really important. You know, I'm so impressed with it all. I think you did a great job. I appreciate that. You know, my goal as a writer, you know, a lot of people that write, they go into it. This is always funny to me. I mean, they think they're going to go into it and make any money. That always just makes me laugh. But, you know, a lot of people's goal is to make money or to have fame or to have fans, anything that I write, but especially this, especially this subject and especially these, these books. My only goal with writing, I want people to give a damn. You know, I almost don't even care what they give a damn about. I just want them to give a damn about something and do something about it. And if I can make that CF, then I have done more than I thought I could. And I'm going to keep at it until I make somebody care and somebody want to do something about it. Well, I think you have and you will. And you're graciously donating all the proceeds to the Bonnell Foundation, which is incredible and will really help us continue the financial assistance and all the programs and the lung transplant grants and everything that we do. I mean, it's such a huge gift. We can't even thank you enough. It is wonderful. Yeah, it is the absolute least I can do. The absolute least. Well, I'm glad everyone's going to have the opportunity to read your books. I also think, you know, as we talk, and I get it too, like having gone from being a news reporter to now my foundation. But when I write, it's like this intimate thing, right? You can say whatever you want. No one's going to judge you. You write it down. Even if you put it on social media, it's really so from the heart. And I see that in you too. I feel like I express myself better when I'm writing things down. Right. And oh, yeah. You feel that obviously. Oh, yeah, as well. absolutely. I mean, you hear me. I, I ramble when I talk. I stutter when I talk. I can't always get my words together. I get frustrated. But, you know, give me a well, keyboard more than a pen and paper these days. But give me a chance and I can just get right in that zone. I know exactly what I want to say and I can say it. Get a little wordy sometimes, but that's just my style. And then you edit. Yes. And then I edit <laughs> a lot. Yeah. You're working so hard. Kind of take us through the process that you've been going through with this book or any novel that you've done, but there is so much. I think about, I just did a, a podcast just about my foundation and what it takes to build a foundation. And I think 
it's not similar to writing a book. The only similarity I see is that no one realizes everything that it takes and right. all the things that go sideways quite mm-hmm. often. So I just wanted you to explain like, uh, you know, it's the creation of the, for you, the characters first, the ideas, and then what is the process? And you and I both met Bijal Trevetti and she wrote the book Breath from Salt and it took her eight years. Like there's nothing fast about writing no. a book. And her narrative nonfiction skills are fantastic. Anybody that hasn't read Breath from Salt should really do it. It's just an absolutely amazing book. She was lovely to meet. Yeah, she was great. And take us through what you are doing as you write your novels and this one in particular. Well, like I said before, my first few drafts are just sort of sloppy. I don't worry too much about typos or grammar or whatever it is or because I figure I'm going to, you know, I'm going to add 200 percent more and I'm going to edit out at least 75 percent of everything that I do. So I just sort of go through it and you, you start to feel your way. At least I do. And it's funny, too, because I can't ever force a story. Like if I decide, well, this character is going to do this thing or this, this is the plot line. Oh, my characters will revolt. They'll stop talking to me. And that's when I know that I'm doing something wrong. It's literally I feel my way through. And if I hit that roadblock, like, OK, this isn't working. And, you know, it's not like, oh, my plot's not working. It's like, no, they're not telling me what's happening because I'm not listening to them. So my my process is kind of schizophrenic. I honestly. love the process. I love it. And then in my final couple of drafts is where I go in and I put in that real description. And in Falls the Breath, there's a lot of descriptive in that. So I think I added probably 80% of that in the last two drafts, where you can walk into the room and really see what's happening in that room, you know, or what the characters are looking at or the sounds. Um, there's a scene where there's a, a rhythmic howling in the fireplace. That was in my very last draft. Wow. So, Someone, when they did, what is it called? The write-up about your novel. Yes. The one that I have right now was from Reader's Favorite. Yeah, that was an and, editorial review. And that editorial review is so beautiful. And she loved how you set up the room and did all that detail. When you read a review like that, it was so beautiful. And we put it in the show notes as well. Oh, thank What you. do you feel when you see this after you've worked so hard? Oh, absolute relief. <laughs> Honestly, you know, I have the, I have a little bit of imposter syndrome going on. I know I can write. I read what I write sometimes and I'm like, wow, you know, that was pretty good. People tell me that I can write, but there's always that feeling that maybe not, you know? So when, when you get, especially an editorial review, when you get an editorial review back with that sort of praise, it's just like, it's reaffirming. And it's such a relief. It's just like, oh, okay, it doesn't stink. Like, I, <laughs> I did a good job. It all makes sense. No plot holes. You know, it, it's all good. I always worry about the plot holes. I've read too many books with plot holes, and I try to go over that with a fine-tooth comb. So when nobody mentions it, then I figure I succeeded. So her, her review was really nice. It was it really was. nice to get that. She did a great review. Tell us about the first book in the series, kind of what people can expect from this book. It just give an overview of what you've written. Yeah, False the Breath kind of defies genre. It is technically speculative fiction or literary fiction, meaning that it's character driven. It's more character driven than it is plot driven. Um, but it also sort of crashes into paranormal fiction 
and it crashes into a sort of urban fantasy type. So anybody that you know, doesn't follow genre is going to completely ignore what I just said. But it is a story that takes place in a turn-of-the-century mansion called Brimfield. It begins with the original owner's son, Lorenzo, already having passed years before, and he is a moody, brooding poltergeist that sort of stalks the mansion by himself. Bring in the next character, who is Mahoney Miller, who is um, a disgruntled feminist before her time. I think it's 1948. She takes a job at Brimfield because she wants to make enough money to sail on a ship. She just wants to get out of Chicago. She ends up having a catastrophic fall on the staircase, meets Lorenzo, and they spark this immediate connection. We sort of chronicle their kind of coming to terms with their afterlife together. And then fast forward to 1982, when the Cotilla family buys the estate and the two little girls can see and hear the ghosts. And that's where everything really pivots. That's where all boundaries are sort of erased and the living and the dead collide. Now, the story takes place, obviously, over generations, several years. But Samara, when she is 16, has an unexpected pregnancy and gives birth to Kevin. And Kevin is the character that has cystic fibrosis. And then the story takes another bent there and goes more into Kevin and his brother Frankie's sort of high school experience, which is tumultuous and sort of uh, catastrophic in itself, I guess. But Kevin's portion of the story really is about a kid who's sick, who's just trying to live his life. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of the point. I think at some point in the story, Astrid, one of the characters, says that she used to think that people who were sick were nothing but sinking ships. But she doesn't see Kevin anyway that more. She sees him more like the phoenix. And that's really the theme. That is beautiful. Beautiful in the way that you can write it and show that to other people and help them see that as well throughout your books. Yeah, I think people do think of people that have illnesses, have chronic illnesses. They just think that they're, you know, too sick to get out. And sometimes they are too sick to get out of bed. But when they can get out of bed, not much stops them. Not really. They do what they can do to the best that they can do it. And have the most fun they can. I actually have a friend who said to me, sometimes you just have to embrace the suck until there's something fun to do. And I never forgot that. I just thought, you know what? That's okay. <laughs> That's a motto to live by. Right? It's like my daughter, obviously, Molly and Emily have CF. And Emily said once, sometimes you just have to sit in the sadness for that day. You just have to let it happen. And then you move on. I mean, yeah. you can't sit in the sadness for a week, but you can sit in it for a day, experience it, feel it, and then move on. Right. And it's the same kind of thing that you're saying. It's experiencing it. And both my girls definitely write down their thoughts. And I think, you know, I want to hear your thoughts, but even if people aren't writers and they're journaling to get their thoughts out, I think it really is helpful to people. And I think that's one of the things you were talking to all the moms about when we did that mom's retreat via over Zoom. Yeah, stories are important. All of our stories are important. And, you know, we're kind of not all of us, but a lot of us are kind of taught to think that they're not like our experiences is meaningless. But stories save lives. When we were at the mom's retreat, one of the things that I said is 
if you tell your child, you have to wear a helmet on your bike because I fell off my bike and I hit my head. That doesn't mean much to the kid. Okay, so you fell off and you hit your head. But if you say, look, I fell off my bike, I hit a curb, I got eight stitches in my scalp and I knocked out three teeth. You have to wear a helmet. They're more likely to wear that helmet. The stories and the details of the stories are so important. The stories that we tell, the stories that we write. And when you're writing, just write. Don't worry about publishing. Don't worry about what anybody's going to think or what an editor is going to say. Don't worry about the critique. Just write it. And who cares if it made sense to you, then it made sense to somebody. You know, put it down. And if you decide that it's something that you want to do, it's something that you want to pursue, you're going to do draft after draft after draft until you get it how you want it. And then you're going to have somebody read it and maybe have an editor. And it will turn out to be something that's publishable if you want to take that route. If not, just tell your stories, whether you write them down or you say them out loud, just tell them. We all have stories. Stories make the world go round. Stories, I'm repeating myself, stories save lives. But it is beautiful when you read your books and other people's books. I mean, you really are engrossed in either someone else's lives or the story of the book, right? You're just taken away. You're in a different place. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so when you read my books. I mean, I think that's kind of, it's one of the things that I like about reading. You get to do things that you would never do. You get to go places that you would never go. And you get to meet people that you would never have known. And sometimes those stories and sometimes those characters, they just stay with you. You never lose them. Another great thing about books is you can always go back and visit your friends. Yeah, you, know, you start to miss your friends. You just open up your book and there you are. You know, you're back in Dragonlance running around with a kinder. I mean, seriously, it's just magic. It's absolute magic. You create something from nothing and you take people on a journey. It's it's the best, I wouldn't really call it a job, but it's the best job ever. That is beautiful. And do sometimes you think things in the middle of the night and have to like get out of bed and write things down? Or does it keep you awake? Like what other parts of the process do you go through? I don't really wake up in the middle of the night, but I do have dreams. This is how I can tell when I'm really in it. I have dreams where I either am the character or I am looking directly at the character or I'm trying to think of how to explain it. Sometimes when I'm falling asleep, my mind, I'll hear myself writing in my head. It's like a monologue. Mm -hmm. And it's always in a male voice. I don't know what that's about, but (laughs) I'll I'll be falling asleep and, and I'll hear I'm not going to say it's the character's voice, but it's the story. I'll hear it sort of rolling in my head. And then when I wake up the next morning, it's just there. It's just there. And I get up and I I put it down, put it into the book or write it down in my bits and pieces file or whatever it is. It'll just be there. It's like an impression. That's also part of my process, I guess. But yeah, no, I had a dream actually day before yesterday that I was Frankie. <laughs> Uh And I was looking for something. I don't remember what, but I was definitely Frankie. And I remember knowing in my dream that I was Frankie. So that was another bit of my uh, bizarre process, I suppose. I don't know if everybody does that. Probably just me. But it's a whole new world, though. It's back and forth, you know, that's such a very cool thing to be able to do, kind of transport yourself and then tell these stories that you hold in your head. Yeah, it's a sort of a meditation for me. I mean, people talk about being in that zone. That zone for me is very meditative. 
I will write sometimes for six hours and, and not even realize that the whole day is gone. It's just I get into that that meditation, that zone, and, and it's it's warm and it's comfortable and everything else goes away. And that's when I write my best, when I can get in there. That was what I did during the last draft when I added all the description. I was just straight in the zone and it just flowed. And does the location matter? Because I think we always think, oh, in order to write, you have to have the perfect view on the water in this beautiful room. <laughs> no. But reality. For me, it doesn't. I do have trouble if there's a lot of noise or if um, people are talking to me. That'll pull me right out. You know, it's hard, too, because I have kids. Not that my kids are little kids, but I still have kids. And they'll come and ask me something or they'll tell me something or need something. And I'm just like... Sometimes it's harder to get back into the zone once I get yanked out. But as far as location, no, no. I wrote probably four drafts of Falls the Breath sitting on my bed. <laughs> like Literally, I just wrote it from my bed with my keyboard on my lap. Like I said, for me, it's more about sound. It's more about noise. I have to kind of block everything out. I listen to a lot of opera and classical music when I'm writing because I can turn it up loud and I don't. I don't have lyrics that I can understand and I can't hear the cats fighting and the dog barking and that helps. That is a really good point. What are you thinking about like from here? Do you have other books planned or do you just wait until it comes into your head? I had all six books in the Brimfield Ghosts written. They're written. I mean, the last two are pretty rough. So I'm that's going to be kind of starting from scratch. But Book two is already written. It just needs to be edited. I need to go through a few more drafts. I'm hoping to have that out, hopefully by this time next year, hopefully sooner, but definitely by this time next year. And then the third book, I'll have to work on that. I do have an idea for another story after, but that is like completely on hold. These are my babies right now, and I have to take care of them until they can toddle off into the publishing world. You've done both processes, right? You've worked with an editor, you've done it without an editor, mm -hmm. you've had a publisher, and now you're doing it where people can buy them on Amazon. So yeah. how does that process come about? Deciding whether to publish traditionally? Yeah, and or... how to publish it, yeah. Um, I had wanted to publish this traditionally. That had been my idea in the beginning. And I did get interest from a major New York agent um, who ultimately decided that she didn't have the time to I forget the word she's used. I think she said she didn't have the time it deserved to make it scream, but she gave me, you know, a really good, um, basically told me there was nothing wrong with it and I should look for another agent. She liked it. She just didn't have the time. At that point, I thought, oh, do I really want to wait like another six months, you know, to see if an agent wants it and if the agent doesn't want it, you know, do I want to wait that long? Because CF can't wait. Cystic fibrosis can't wait. And the people mm -hmm. that come to your foundation can't wait. And I was like, you know what, I could probably get an agent and I'm sure I could get this thing published, but it, it's going to be three years down the line before it comes out. And that was what motivated my decision to self-publish it. And self-publishing is really just a matter of getting it together, getting it formatted properly, uploading it, and then trying to promote it, getting people to read it. And that's wonderful. And sales have already started and we're yes, really excited. Um, haven't done too bad for a brand new book. That's great. Congratulations. And I'm excited because you asked me to voice it. So that's coming yes. down also uh, in the future. Yes, it is. I love also <laughs> that 
during this interview, you're wearing a uh, cystic oh, fibrosis yeah. shirt. Yeah, you know, I didn't even think about that. I just had it on. Isn't that funny? That's it. how our yeah. lives roll. Like we're yeah. on this CF path together. I mean, just thinking about how we connected and the whole CF connection. And now you've done this book with Kevin who has CF mm-hmm. um, and you're raising awareness and education wrapped up in this beautiful book. I mean, it's really wonderful. Well, I appreciate you saying that. I worked really hard on it. So if it can do good, if it can change minds and hearts and do good, then that is my goal. That is what I want. Well, it is a wonderful goal. And if people want the book, we also have it in show notes, but they can go to Amazon and look Falls the Breath by Melody Ramone. As of right now, it is only in ebook format. Paperback will be coming shortly. Okay. Paperback should be out somewhere in the beginning part of August, I'm thinking. Okay. Anything else that you want to talk about as far as kind of your connection to the CF community or about writing this book? Um, I just really would like to thank people in the CF community for welcoming me in. Well, it's easy for us to welcome you because (laughs) you're such sunshine and so, so giving back to the community and so interested in learning everything and then getting correct information back out. And you're so supportive of everyone. I really try. And I I just appreciate because I know it's a difficult disease and I know it isolates people. And I just really, really love and appreciate everyone for welcoming me in and understanding what I'm doing and letting me do it and supporting me in doing it. It really just means the world to me. Well, thank you so much for um, all you're doing to raise awareness about cystic fibrosis. And we'll have to do an update in a couple months. And yeah. let everybody know how the book is doing. And and we still have to, we have to do a book party. Although we are going to have you autographing the book at our Night of Hope Gala yeah. that's September 9th. So if people want to meet you and yep, I will be there. get a book, that is the place to do it. Yep. So that'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, it will be. I'm looking forward to that. Thank you, Melody. Okay, thank you. If you're looking for a good party, an event where you can mix and mingle with kind people, join the Bonnell Foundation on Saturday, September 9th for the Night of Hope Diamonds in the Sky event. We're going to have fun and raise a lot of money for our programs. See the ticket link in show notes or on our website. We'll see you there. The original music in this podcast is performed by Kevin Allen. It's not complicated. Who happens to have cystic fibrosis. We all got our worries and fears. I know what's got you frustrated. But loving you is so all right. This has been the Living with Cystic Fibrosis podcast. For more information and to learn more about the Bonnell Foundation, visit our website at thebonnellfoundation.org. That's the B-O-N-N-E-L-L foundation.org. This podcast was sponsored by Beatrice, Genentech, and Vertex. It was produced by Jagged Detroit Podcasts. Follow our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now.